Welcome to episode 60 of the McSauce Comic Book Podcast. My name is Paul McGinty. With me are Ian Sharpley. Hello. And Matthew Rosenberg Cassell. Hello. It is Friday night, June 6th. Taking a different tack for our recording this week because somebody, Ian, can't do our usual Monday night, but that's okay. Happy birthday, Laya. I'll be there to join you on your birthday. Happy early. Not be a selfish prick and do my podcast. Happy early birthday, Laya. Matt and I will be celebrating by doing a podcast without Ian. How dare you? It is Friday night, and we're all feeling pretty all right. We're ready for podcasting. We were feeling really down, but now I feel the energy flowing through us, or maybe that's the gyros and wings that we had. I feel pretty good. I feel a lot better. Matt? Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> Matt clearly still wants to go to sleep. He's on, he's on the edge. We don't know. The subject of tonight's podcast will be summer reading. Having a blast. Summer stay, reading. Stay with us, folks. Happens so fast. So, um, before we get to the actual summer reading, and what we plan on reading, and what we plan on recommending our listeners read, we like to do housekeeping with Ian Sharp. The clean that house, son. Some audible sweeping. <laughs> Some serious sweeping. Damn. One thing that I can definitely recommend, I don't know what my co-hosts are going to say that they're going to read this summer. I know that I'm going to read reviews and strips on McSauce.com. I'll be reading it because I'll be, you know, writing some of that stuff and doing some of that. But you should go there. It's going to be all new content for you. Check out the reviews on Mondays and Thursdays, strips on Tuesdays and Fridays, and the podcast on Wednesday. You can go to the Facebook page. Another thing that you can read this summer... And, well, that was a pretty loud motorcycle on Friday night. Facebook page, go there, like us, send us some feedback. iTunes, Podomatic, Stitcher Radio. As I've mentioned before, we will be moving to Libsyn fairly certain, uh, fair, yeah, fairly soon. So we'll let you know whenever that does happen. Um, Hopefully, everything will be the same, but if not, we'll let you know in advance so that you can resubscribe or anything that you need to do. While you're in the iTunes store, please rate and review. Leave us some five stars and glowing review, or shitty review. doesn't really matter. Um, someone that you should leave a glowing review is Ryan McCormick and his podcast, A Fireside Chat. He typically does interview-style sessions, um, free-flowing conversations. That's what his forte is. And this upcoming week, he's going to have the best guests that he's ever had on there. Me and Paul sat in and talked about the webcomic that we do. Uh, talked a little bit about our process and how we come up with strips, things like that. Um, so go to a fireside chat. You can go to the iTunes store, subscribe there. He is on, on uh, Libsyn. I believe that he also is going to be on Stitcher Radio. And you can also um, like his Facebook page, tweet him at a fireside chat, and uh, show him some love for the things that he's doing there. 
this summer when you're not reading, I'm sure you'll be going to the movies. Moonlit Matinee Film Festival at the Oaks, presented by Turner's Premium Iced Tea. This coming weekend, well, I guess it'll be next weekend, the 13th and the 14th, Friday the 13th. On the 13th. Uh How haunting of them. The original classic, one that started it all, Crystal Lake, that's where they're at, right? Yeah, that's where they're at. Um, Jason's really not in that one, huh? Camp Crystal Lake. Camp Crystal Lake. Jason doesn't really make any appearance in that one, though, right? He does, but it's very brief. Uh, It's toward the end of the book. Maybe it's not. I don't know if you guys haven't seen it. Almost a spoiler. So go to the Oaks Theater and check out when Jason appears, or if he doesn't. The, the killer, the, the killer, actually is Jason's mother. In that one, in the first one, in the first one, yeah. Isn't Kevin Bacon in that version? You know, I think he is in that, isn't he? I don't think he's in it for very long. Yeah. Another. Uh, I played it pretty early. Yeah, I, I feel so. like you're right. And you know, I guess some some stars kind of got their start in these horror movies. Like Johnny Depp's first acting gig was in. Nightmare on Elm Street 1, and he got eaten by his bed and thrown up on his ceiling. Jamie Lee Curtis was in Halloween. Yeah. And Johnny Depp made it through that entire movie. Um, right? No. If he, he got eaten by his bed, wasn't well, I mean, like, he got eaten at the end. Toward the end, yeah. <clears throat> and am, am I wrong, but wasn't he, like, alive at the very end again or something? In that dream sequence. Her, her, her friends show up and she gets in the car and it drives away but it's like a Freddy mobile or something. <laughs> I thought, wait, wait, I thought at the end of the first one is when like, she wakes up and then she goes to get the door and she gets pulled through the mirror in the hallway or something. Uh, the mom gets pulled through the door as she's waving goodbye to her and kid driving away. Yeah. Huh. Now, uh, but more importantly, Nightmare on Elm Street will not be shown at the Oaks uh, on Friday the 13th. <laughs> it, it, so go on Friday the 13th and see Friday the 13th. Come home and rent on iTunes or if you have it already in your library. Nightmare on Elm Street. On VHS. Go to your local blockbuster. Now, what do you guys think? Because it's, it's always been like Freddy, mm-hmm. Jason... Michael Myers and Leatherface. Those are your big four for your slasher classic heroes, anti-heroes, villains. I don't know. Who do you like? I like Freddy. Mm -hmm. I also like, I'm going to throw another one in there, Pinhead from the Hellraiser series. Ah, Pinhead. The Dark Horse. Mm -hmm. I was always partial to Freddy. Yeah. I was too. Until I got a little bit older, and I've been leaning more toward Michael Myers, actually. What do you think would be the more scary villain to encounter? What, in real life? In real life. I know they would all be frightening, but which one do you think would, you know, because Michael Myers and and Jason... Maybe Leatherface would be the scariest. Yeah, because he's got the chainsaw. And all the the human body parts, and kind of the... 
I don't know if they're... I guess they're cannibals and... Yeah. I mean, Jason's all that, but the Leatherface takes it to a more, like, disturbing level, I yeah, feel. Yeah, he's, like, wearing all that shit. Where yeah, but if, Freddy if can Jason, also, like, transform his body, so... Yeah. Like, that... If Jason catches you, he's just gonna kill you. If Leatherface catches you, you're in for some torture. Yeah, yeah. he's gonna hang you up on a meat hook. And do something bad to you. Yeah, right. Yeah, that well, that's pretty scary too. Freddy's scary. the The idea of Freddy is scarier than maybe he actually is. Like, it's almost like you can't get away from him because you do have to sleep at some point. That's true. That is. Pretty and when scary. that happens, you're fucked. Unless you train yourself to fight him in your dreams, like in the Dream Warriors. Right. When the crippled kid said, my dream, my legs are strong, and he stood up, you remember that, and he was like a wizard? I think that's what, that's one of the reasons I like Dream Warriors so much, is because it had that kind of, um, that kind of a superhero vibe to it, mm-hmm. like all of a sudden, like these kids were able to take control of the situation, and really fight back, and they weren't just the victims. Right. Although, what was the chick's name in the, the next one or two? Alice? I don't really remember. And she fought, too. She fought back as well, I want to say. Anyway, um, this is the summer reading podcast. This is not the uh, the, the horror, horror, movie part, the horror yeah. movie part three McSauce podcast. I'm not in the mood to scare the shit out of myself tonight. Preview to what we will be doing in October. The, the lights are on. They're not that dim. There are no candles. Let's talk summer reading. I love how bad we scared ourselves during that one. It's when you go back and listen, I don't feel like our fear translates to the to the Does it translate like the horn that just played in the background? That is the weirdest sounding car horn I've ever heard. Paul has I don't been know having if that some, came up on the I don't think the mic picked up. I'm pretty sure it did. Paul's been having some uh, nostril problems today. Yeah, some plumbing issues. Yes, is it pollen? Is that what it is? Um, Allergy based. Probably a little bit of that. The uh, the hot wings and jalapeno poppers for dinner probably didn't help. Didn't clear it right up. I think it just I feel like it loosened everything up. You know what might clear now it everything's up? Everything's coming out. That that I'm thinking about it. Summer reading, Paul. <clears throat> what are you planning on reading this summer? Well. I guess we'll, we'll kick off with this big guy here. Um, I don't think I'm going to get to it. I would like to at least start it. I have so much to read, but I also have so much to do. That Plus weekly books. I've got to read my weekly comics, plus all this other stuff. Um, that is a monster. My mother got me The Complete Tales and Poems of Edgar Allan Poe. It's probably about a two-and-a-quarter-inch thick book. Complete works. And I know Poe was like a... That's what you read in college when you're being emo and whatever. Yeah, you hipster dipshit. But at the core of Edgar Allan Poe's work is horror stories. Hmm. It's tying back into our horror podcast tonight. We cannot escape it. <laughs> I gotta find some horror shit to read real quick here. Um, I've I've read a good bit of um, <clears throat> Edgar Allan Poe uh, back in back in high school. I guess some of the 
some of the bigger stories like uh, Telltale, Telltale, Telltale Heart, um, Annabelle E, Purloined Letter, stuff like that. But um, I haven't really sat down and really dug into the entire work. So this has been sitting on my end table for a long time, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it and seeing what it's all about. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty hefty read. You're going to have time to do that, to breeze through that light reading. It's going to take a long time, and I'm sure that there's going to be some stinkers in here that are that are going to take a little longer to get through. Uh-huh. I'll probably read a couple of those bummers and be like, oh, how am I going to keep getting through this? But I will. This is, and this is not a take-it-on-vacation book. This is a leave-it-at-home, gigantic tome that you don't yeah. want to carry around. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the whole take-it-with-you-on-vacation thing because the iPad has made taking whatever the fuck you want with you kind of cool. Like, I mean, you don't have to worry about... I remember when I was a kid and I would go on vacation, I would pack a backpack filled with comic books, but I always had that little fear that I'm going to fuck them up in the car or something. I'll roll over on one while I'm trying to sleep or something. And I would... Um, I would make sure that I bagged and boarded everything. But, you know, you're in the confines of your car. you got your brother's fat legs, like, overhanging you in the back seat. And you, you accidentally get the tape from the bag on the cover of the comic book, and then it rips, and then you cry. Oh, and it, it and ruins you your vacation. And you cry. It ruins your vacation. Um, so now an iPad, there's nothing that can go wrong with an iPad, right? Well... Nothing. It's it's indestructible. Indu- the indestructible iPad. You can stop Freddy with it. <laughs> I like it. But but the cool thing is, like literally, you can bring your comic book library with you. You can bring the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and it takes up no extra space. That's pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Paul, when are you going to get an iPad? One of these days. One of these days. Have I'm you heard of them? Out, I'm familiar. Yes. I'm familiar. Do you, are you aware of the power of the iPad and what it, what it can do against supernatural creatures of the night? Yeah. If I, only you knew the power of the <laughs> iPad. <clears throat> if Matt said that, I'd recommend putting a quarter in the deep cut jar. Everybody knows <laughs> that. I know. That wasn't that wasn't nearly nearly a deep cut. It's when you Darth just, tells his son to update and get with the digital age. Will you be reading anything this summer on your iPad, Ian? I don't read a lot of books. And you realize what we're saying? We're talking shit that you wouldn't ordinarily read. It can be books, it could be novels, mm-hmm. it could be comic books, but it's it's stuff outside of your weekly regular pull list sure. that we're talking about. I uh, listen to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Audible.com, can't recommend it highly enough. Um, one thing that I've downloaded that I haven't really gone through the entire way, Batman in Psychology, A Dark and Stormy Night. Night spelled, you know, like the night, not like the night night. It's about the complexity of why people love Batman. Uh, what is it about 
this character created in the golden age of comics that still holds the interest of the readers even in today. And his popularity seems to be growing, uh, not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, he doesn't have any superpowers. What's the fascination with that? Um, why, why does he fight the crime that he fights? What kind of villains? What does the villains that he comes up against, what does it say about him? Um, can I can I interject for a second? It, you certainly it's can. interesting that you say that, you know, it seems like Batman's popularity won't be waning anytime soon. But it's if you think about it, his popularity was not nearly what it is today back in the late 90s, early 2000s, right before the Batman Begins film came out. You know, when that movie was coming out, I think people were excited, but they weren't like rabidly like on the edge of their seat with anticipation the way they were when the dark knight came out well you also have to branch out you can't just tie it strictly to films it's also tied into the video game franchise that's extremely popular right. with another generation what i'm of saying bat fans. what i'm saying though is the film franchise had had flopped and turned into garbage with batman and robin the comic books were they were okay. They were good. You know, the, there was stuff like Cataclysm and No Man's Land uh, about that time. Hush was out around there. Hush. Did Hush predate Batman Begins? Yes. 2000. It was, Hush was in 2001 or 2002. Oh. Hush premiered in 2001. Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> um... But I feel like the the overall popularity of the comic in in pretty much every medium at that time pales in comparison to what it is today. I disagree. I think that more people are familiar with Batman in a a variety of different forms. Mm -hmm. Um, People, kids know the Brave and the Bold cartoon. Uh, Older people know of the 60s Batman Filmgoers know of the, you know, Batman v Superman that'll be coming out. There are a lot more uh, properties that are out there that uh, hit different uh, parts of the the fandom. So what you're saying is he's more popular today than he was back in the early 2000s. 100%. So then you agree with me. Oh, I thought you said that he wasn't as popular. If I said that, I didn't mean it. Oh, okay. I just Paul. What did I say? Misunderstood you. I thought um, I don't know. I don't know what he said. To the tape. But I think so. We're agreeing that he's more popular now than he was. Yeah, yeah. What what I'm saying is though, because I was saying that his popularity wasn't going anywhere, and then I thought you were disagreeing. Well, no, no, no. What I'm saying is, as the late '90s and early 2000s showed, the. If you create some bad media, like let's say the the Batman Superman movie comes out and is right. crap, okay, you can start to lose um, kind of fan uh, support, okay, right? And 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 it can happen because we saw it happen because right. Batman was on top of the world in the early '90s, correct? Or 1989? I say '89. Mm-hmm. Even in the Batman Returns era as well. You know, there are the video games, the uh, the comic books were starting to reflect what was showing up in the movies in terms of, like, having the Dark Knight. Um, and 
I think eighty nine was the was like the top of like people knowing one version, the Tim Burton version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, I think now it's it's a various different uh, versions of the Batman that people. No, I about. agree. I agree with that. But what I'm saying is, if you kind of flop with a few things, history has showed. History has shown, not showed, right? Showed. Did I get it it's right? Not shown. It's shown. Okay. Has shown that um, people's interest can can land on the character, even if it feels like it's infallible, because it felt infallible once before, and then kind of stumbled a little bit, and then you have a super successful franchise as well as you know other things like the video game, like you said. Uh, you know the, the comic book is in an all time high. I feel right now, uh, maybe not selling the the. Could that have been louder, Paul? I really wasn't trying to make it. I don't. <laughs> um, the comic's up there, but do do we really think it's at all time high? I, I believe think Hush might have been the all time high of people's excitement, uh, maybe uh, even numbers wise as well. Well, I, I don't know about numbers wise, and and I don't. I mean, yeah, Hush was pretty pretty damn popular but what i'm saying is what are we in the the third year of the new 52 and batman has pretty much regularly been the number one sold comic book in the country numbers wise it's like way down it's like 300,000 whereas like back in the 90s we would be talking about a million plus seller is the number one title yeah. but i'm just saying it it retaining that top spot you know hush was only 12 issues the the Scott Snyder runs. What, what are we at now? Like twenty or thirty? Thirty two? Thirty one? That's a good point. It has and it's been consistent. Same creative team has been on it for three years, basically. With and and that's gaps. a rare thing. So mm-hmm. I mean, th- I think that's really cool that the comic book is um, kind of maintaining that status quo that you know the film series seems to be doing and. Um, well, the cartoon was terrible. The what was it called? The Batman? Was that what the it was? The Batman. Yeah. The Batman. The uh, the video game animation one. Ouch. One thing that Lex you... Luthor is the butler. <laughs> one thing you know about <laughs> Batman is that he's so popular that we're only probably another year or two away from the rumblings of another Batman cartoon being in the works. We are going to have. Gotham, a show not really about Batman, but at least about the world that he's in on Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always something in in pop culture that has to do with Batman. Book that I'll be reading or listening to, it you know just deals with with all the reasons why we love Batman and, and what that says about us as a, a culture. Do you flip flop between listening to the audio, like let's say you're commuting to work and then you get home? Do you want to read it then? Will you? Do you own the book as well? I I never do that, but there's a feature called WhisperSync where yeah, you was- can buy like for a. a additional fee you can buy the book it'll give you the audio book as well and you can do that and it'll it'll bookmark it when you stop reading and pick up from wherever yeah. you stopped reading and you can either listen to it or read it right I, and much, that's through kindle right yeah 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 um i'd much rather honestly just listen to it i find more enjoyment and ability to multitask and do other things that i need to do when i'm listening to things so I agree with you, however, if your multitasking is too 
uh, brain taxing, I feel like it's just ambient noise. And then you're like, oh my god, I don't remember where I finished listening, even though it's been going for the last hour. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I choose to do it if I'm sitting there finishing up a strip, or if I'm out you know, mowing the lawn or on the treadmill, something where I can, you know, devote that time or if I'm commuting to work so that I can take in the entire story. So you have not started this, this book yet, this audio I, I listened to maybe the first chapter, but uh, there, there's hours and hours left. I think I have 17 hours oh, left. Oh, boy. So, yeah. Now, the, the funny thing about audiobooks for me is... If you have a bad reader, forget it. If the person that's reading the book to you sounds – if you don't like their voice or if they sound a little bland or whatever, if you don't connect with it in some way, it's you cannot enjoy the book. I don't care how well written it is. There's another thing. If you're listening to a series, you have to hope and pray that the same person that's reading it goes through the series. The Dark Tower series, the first three books start off it's the same – same person that's uh, narrating it, perfect voice, real, you know, dry, westerny sounding. And then for the final installments, they had to change it because that guy passed away. They had to change it to somebody who eventually, maybe after a book, you kind of get used to, but he wasn't the same as the original guy. Well, that's too bad. It was too bad. For me, I, I mean, my poor little ears. <laughs> but, Matt, what are you going to be reading this summer? <clears throat> well, I have a, a, a small amount of things that I'd really like to get into. One of the things uh, this summer that I'd like to really kind of dive into are the resurrection of the Valiant characters. You know, I've been thinking a lot about... <clears throat> I'm a very nostalgic person by by nature, so like, you know... I know that you guys have said in the past you feel like we are living in the gold, like the the modern golden era of comic books. Well, for me, the golden era was when I got into it. That was like kind of my formative years, and those characters from way back when I was twelve years old still resonate with me today. So I hold a very special place for the Valiant characters that they have since resurrected in in Valiant comics. But Paul, as you know. A lot of those original Valiant characters, not original, but the Valiant ones when Valiant first launched in the early 90s, were actually gold key characters from, what what would it have been, the 60s? I believe so. Or does it go back even further than that? Eh, it might have been 60s, 70s. Um, oh, I was who, thinking was maybe so, the 50s. It was Solar. Solar, I believe. Solar. <clears throat> um, gold key comics. Ran from 62 to 84. Okay, so the 60s. It was an imprint of Western publishing. Exo Manowar was one of the ones. No, was that original? No. Or? The, the original Gold Key characters were Solar, Magnus Robot Fighter, Turok Dinosaur Hunter, and uh, there's another character called um, Dr. Spectre. Who I believe Valiant then had a, a character that may or may not have been inspired by him called The Second Life of Dr. Mirage. I don't know if you remember that one, Ian. Vaguely. Um, but, <laughs> do you vaguely remember but, that? No, so, I do vaguely. So, just, uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm being honest. I vaguely remember. I didn't really read any, um, Valiant. any Valiant stuff, but I remember seeing it on the rack. Well, Valiant um, was 
you know, Valiant was able to um, create their own stable of characters to kind of enhance the the gold key characters that they got the rights to. So they got the rights to Magnus and, and Turok and Solar and all those guys. But then they created Exo Manowar. They created Valiant Comics back in the early 90s. They created Harbinger. They created Bloodshot, Rye, all kinds of like really cool characters. Ninjack. Ninjack. Um, I dispute the really cool characters claim. Well, you've read a lot of them, I'm sure, so you would know. So, ever since Valiant relaunched a couple years ago, I have kind of sporadically kind of picked away at some of the things and, and consumed them and enjoyed basically everything I've read. I think the one downfall for a lot of the books is the artwork. I think that the storytelling's interesting and fun and fast-paced and pretty unique. That's um, always been Valiant's knock, is that their artwork wasn't on par yeah. with Marvel, DC, or Image. Right. Now, you know, part of what I really, what appeals to me about the Valiant stuff is these are all the same characters, even though they're kind of like a reboot, sort of like the new 52 is to, you know, DC characters that I grew up with. But I like that it's kind of taken me back to a familiar time. Whereas when I look at image comics now, it's like, I don't even fucking recognize this company anymore. You know, there's a new series every week and you know that could be good sometimes Nailbiter was a great example of one you don't recognize it but you buy all these number ones i do check a lot of them out because i'm always you know interested in good news stuff and usually i'm let down but sometimes you get that gem like Nailbiter. i am convinced that Nailbiter is going to be something you know i feel like it's going to go for a while and have success because i do feel like it is a a cut above the rest but Getting back to Valiant characters, I want to read Dynamite has gotten now the rights to the old gold key characters, Magnus, Turok, Solar, and Dr. Spectre, and they've relaunched all these books. We're in maybe the third month now, the third issue for most of these books, and um, they seem really pretty good. Like I, I haven't read them yet, but I've looked at them, and they have really nice artwork, um, and are you a fan of Dynamite's brand of not, comic book? Not traditionally. Okay. I feel like there's a lot of flash and no substance. I yeah. believe, um, wasn't it Green Hornet that was one of the Dynamite books? I always felt like it looked pretty good. Like the, the production values, like the paper itself was really nice. The coloring was good. But the art was kind of eh. It was made to look better than it was because the digital coloring was that good. Plus they put Kevin Smith's name on it to sell books, but like the importance, well, not just the important stuff, but the artwork itself was a little lacking. And I feel like sometimes they feel like a little shallow, maybe. I don't, I know I'm very, I'm generalizing an entire publisher, but, um, they lean pretty heavy on Alex Ross covers and yeah, Kevin Smith name. A lot of throwback stuff, like a lot of resurrected things from the, Alex Ross with all the um, the superheroes or the what was it called the the superpowers? Was I that, can't remember. Was weak ass forty superpowers? Yeah, yeah. Stuff I, that, I felt like he made that up and it just 
fit in the 40s? Or mm-hmm. was that old, those old properties that he, like... Old properties ah, that, that okay. were, I think they're a public domain now, right? Okay. I see that Daredevil guy that's half black and half red. With yeah, the, with the boomerang. Belt. The yeah. boomerangs, yep. yeah. Yeah. So, but... Valiant Comics does not have the the gold key guys that they used to have in the 90s. So now that, like, when I look at it, I see, like, two Valiants. I realize they're originally gold key guys, but when I look at Magnus Robot Fighter, that's a Valiant character to me. Because that's what he was when I was a kid, and I didn't know shit about gold key. But I'm just interested in just checking these characters out and kind of revisiting them and seeing kind of, like, what are they like now? Is it... Still stuff that I'm interested in because it it face value it looks pretty good. Is there one uh, one series in particular that you're interested in? Yeah, um, Magnus Robot Fighter. I, I Which sounds ridiculous. It kind of does. And bunch of robot in his neck. I have it here somewhere, but um, yeah, some of the artwork in it looked really good to me. Um, there's a there's a really cool. It's kind of like a not a full splash page. It's but like that's a, the one that doesn't look inked. Yeah, it's like a half of a, a double page splash, where he's like flying and crushing a car. And the artwork is incredible. I love it, and um, I'm just really looking forward to kind of devouring that series and getting into it, and then moving on to maybe Solar or Turok or something. But uh, yeah, a little bit of a throwback summer for me. Are you interested in Turok? Probably less than Solar and Doctor Specter, but I, I'm interested enough to check them out because again, like it's so recognizable to me. It, it was such a big part of me being into comics when I first got into them when I was a kid. Could be really good. I don't know anything about these characters other than what I just looked up on the old Wikipedia. Yeah, what did you find? Um. Just that they're originally gold key characters, and they're pretty old. Yeah, I don't. I, I think if I was not going to get one of those, it would definitely be Turok. I think that genre in general is not for me. What is the genre? Guy in the jungle. The guy in the jungle genre. <laughs> Isn't that what that is? He's like. Tarzan? Yeah, I mean, jungle comics. They're, it doesn't have to be a guy. It could be a girl. Amazon princess. Well, that's different. You bring her to the city and it all works. But Turok and Tarzan and that, even though Frank Cho draws that sexy Marvel character, she Tarzan. Shana. What's her name? I don't yeah. know. the she-devil or something like that. Kazar. See, I'm in yeah. with that Frank Cho one. Of course you are, because you're filthy. You're a dirty old man. Paul was um, are any of these anything you would ever try like if I if I said hey I got the first six issues of Magnus Robot Fighter I'd really like for you to read it would you read it I will try anything if it's given to me I may not go out and buy those but I will nobody said you have to I will try anything at least once before I promptly smash it to the ground that doesn't always happen. That doesn't always Paul happen. Paul can be won over. That's true. Unlike Ian, who has a firm stance and does not waver. That is a... That's a lie? I can't be won over? He's like, that's a lie and you can't convince me otherwise. 
I gave Nova a chance recently, and I really enjoyed it. Nova's a really good book. So there. In your face. In your face. What else you got there, Paul? Well, I have the... I own the entire Stephen King collection. And I haven't read maybe the last quarter, because that's a lot of fucking books. But I guess two, three years ago now, I started from the very beginning. I wanted to read all of them chronologically. What was his first book? Carrie. Ah. What year did he write that? Off the top of my head. I do not know. That's a guess. It's a guess. For whatever reason, I want to feel, I want to say, like, he was writing shit in the 60s, but... He wasn't. Uh, Carrie was released in 74. You were closer than me. And you didn't go over, so... You I win! Showcase Showdown. <laughs> <laughs> so, I got up to 1980's Firestarter, and uh, that's where I... I uh, that's where I kind of got hung up, because I've been reading a ton of other stuff. I read uh, Ian's Starman Omnibus, Volume 1. Mm-hmm. I'm reading Dominic's Batman the Cult right now, which is such an 80s book, it's really hard to get through. But the coloring in it, I noticed, looks an awful lot like the coloring from current Batman books. Everything's kind of pastel-y. Washed out. Washed out stuff, yeah. Nothing's really the color that it should be. Maybe it's just a throwback. And, yeah, and after reading half of Batman the Cult, I'm like, you know what? That's probably what the Batman colorist is doing right now. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a flashback story to Bruce's early days. So it's, I assume it would be set in the late 80s, early Can 90s? No, five years ago. Five years ago. Yeah. Can we talk? I'm sorry. It's a flashback story, so maybe that's what FCO Placienza is doing with the colors. But that doesn't mean I like it. I don't feel like it's just the colors in the current Batman book that I have a problem with regarding the artwork. I'm I'm gonna... Uh it's, It's a little painful to even have to do it. But bear with me. I feel like Greg Capullo's pencils... Uh, or maybe it's the inks over top of them are a little, they're not particularly dynamic. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of, like, kind of wimpy line work. There's no, like, bold strokes anywhere to really kind of, like, define certain shapes anywhere. It's it's all kind of, like, the same width kind of strokes, and there's, like, a lot of them, and they just feel kind of like fragile lines. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. He's had the same anchor since the New 52. Right, and like if I think back to his days on Spawn, now I don't have a comparison in front of me, but I do feel like his work there, when you would look at a, his artwork on Spawn, there would be like more of a um, variation in the line work, and, and the inks in certain areas would be heavier, and it just felt like more solid. Like now, it feels a little bit as if it's sketched. See, I don't, I don't get that idea at all. I don't have a problem with the artwork. Like, I, when, whenever I go through it, whenever I read those issues, I, I always think, man, I would love this artwork if the color wasn't all past, all washed out pastels. Um, I'm not saying it's all bad. I just wish there was a little bit more variation. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I agree. Like everything's 
Not everything's the same weight, but there isn't enough variation. Yeah. Like, there's, there isn't going to be and, a heavy black anywhere that's going right, to really right. pop something out at you. And I'm, and I'm totally saying this with having no reference in front of me whatsoever, so maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Do I usually? Uh, you guys are being a little nitpicky here, I really think. Are you looking at the artwork right now, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I can understand if people are... Um, if, if you don't like it or if you're burned out on his style, but I, I don't know. I mean, I I don't think that he has, like, the the characters are all bolted out in a complete thick line. But I don't think that's necessary. Not everybody does that. No, I realize that. But, I mean, you know, it's just well, what do you prefer as a, as a fan? That's and, fun. I understand um, that. I, if anything, I have a problem with the way that this current storyline is being dragged out over art or coloring. The way that the storyline and the current Batman is is just taking so long to get through this flashback of, you know, something that I'm not particularly interested in. I agree. It, it, it just isn't my cup of tea. Now, here's an interesting thought. Scott Snyder, the last two times he did the big uh, epic storyline... Um, you know, crossover kind of, well, not that year, year zero or zero year is a crossover, but it is the big epic story that he's trying to tell in Batman. He also tried to do that in, in Swamp Thing, and both of them were kind of like failures compared to what he was typically doing on each of those books, right? Yeah, uh, do you think that's mandated by it DC could- upper management? Either that or maybe that's just not his thing. When he tries to kind of go bigger and badder and better than what he's kind of – what the status quo is, which when it's his status quo, it's very solid and you know totally reliable. When he deviates from it, it I just feel like his stories lose a lot. I don't even – I just – they're just not nearly as interesting. The Court of Owls just felt so organic and it didn't feel like a planned out kind of, um, you know, big summer blockbuster thing. It felt like a natural story, whereas these other things feel like um, a command from down high. Very, very heavy on, like, kind of driving the plot as opposed to kind of letting the characters sort of dictate the flow of the story. Right, Paul? Yeah, that's right. I don't think I don't think that he's being mandated to do anything by DC. I think he was like, "Hey, I have this cool Joker story that's kind of like Court of Owls. It's gonna you know run over twelve issues." And DC was like, "Let's blow it out. We can roll this out to all of all of the you know bat books." But I don't think it was Scott Snyder saying, "Hey, let's do this huge Batman thing." I do think he kind of stepped in it with zero year by going way too big. And I guarantee at some point he's sitting at home in front of his laptop like, man, I fucking stepped in it this time. Cause it's, it's, Where do I go from here? It's it's so big. and Like halfway through, the last two issues I've loved, except the color. But <laughs> other than that, they pulled me back in. But the maybe five issues before the last two I'm like holy fuck when is this going to end is it me or was that like tooth and bone villain from a couple issues unnecessary did it just seem crazy as fuck or what 
Yeah. Um, who the fuck was that? I, I don't even know his name, but it seems so nutty. Like, it did, It seemed like it didn't even fit, I guess. Is, like, if that would have been the main antagonist instead of Riddler, maybe, maybe I could have gone with it. But it was like a side character... Yeah, it seemed like a huge... Because it, it got off to, to a great start. It was... The first arc of Zero Year was about the Red Hood gang. And that was really good. But then you jump into Dr. Nightmare or Dr. Sleep or whatever the fuck that guy is with all the bones and the teeth. Mm-hmm. And that was... That's where he just fucking lost me. Because the Riddler is running through the background of that whole story. And now it's... This third act is Riddler's taking over Gotham. Everything's overgrown with plants and weeds because he took something of poison ivies and now everything's all over the place. And now it's getting interesting again. It's like we wasted so much time in that middle arc with the bone villain. It really lost me, and I just keep wanting for the story to keep to move on to get to something new. I want out of zero year, and I want into some fresh territory now. And this is, you know, this is kind of how I felt about Jeff John's Green Lantern arc. And for as much as, or arc, I should say, time on time on the book, all nine years, as much as I love that entire nine years of his work, there were, there were times when I was like, holy shit, we're getting way too big here. Like, we're just way, way the fuck out there now. And I just wanted him to bring it back home. But, like, he never did, and I love the arc. You know, the overall story you put together in it, but it's, it's great. But I feel like that's what Scott Snyder is doing. In the very beginning, it was this really tight story. It's focused on Batman and the Court, and the court of Owls. And now it's just... Well, now it's just exploded. Now, yeah, seeing Batman fight two lions and win. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> you, know, you know, bordering on Bat-God territory. Uh, but the, the last two issues have been great. I think they they pulled me back in, and hopefully they can just wrap it up. And I think they're on it for another year. So I'd really like like I would like to think fans are expecting just do another quarter house, just bring it back home. Just I'd like it up to see some so really good characters, solo stuff. Let me see Poison Ivy. Let me see a Two Face story. Let me see a Penguin story. You know, give me some greatest hits. While this team's together, I'd like that. Yeah. Do you guys not feel like they're going to keep this team around for longer? I don't know if you can keep any team together this long. It, it already seems to uh, go against the norm, don't you well, think? Well, it certainly does, but there's some really kind of... I, I, it's not unprecedented, but there's some great success that these guys are having. And as soon as you break this team up, you're not going to get that again. Yeah. You know, it's like... I don't care what Greg Capullo goes and works on next, unless it's like... Like Bagley and Bendis. Right. Also, think about what we thought about Greg Capullo before the New 52 and how he's thought of now. I didn't know him before the New 52. His popularity has come... He's never been more popular, I don't think. I mean, when when this exclusive In the contract... Mainstream. When this exclusive contract is up for him... For him this is, this is like I was gonna I was gonna make a hockey reference. Go for it. You're but you're, we in decided you're in not doing that. No, you're in it. We're gonna, go for it. Go for you it. You said it out loud, so you <laughs> might as well do it. It's it's like when you get a 27 year old entering the prime of his career, coming up on the end of his first big contract, entering free agency. 
Greg Capullo was huge in the 90s, but I feel like he's just exploded on this Batman book. And maybe it also has to do with Scott Snyder and the fact that these two work so well together. Uh, they're very accessible in the media. They're always doing interviews, always talking about the book. and Always com- tweeting. Always tweeting. And the combination of them... Always be tweeting! ...has made this book so popular. Yeah, I think for the last three years, this has been the number one selling book. Like, pretty steadily. Mm-hmm. So... I feel like he's in the like in the prime of his career right now. So once this exclusive's up, like I think Marvel is just gonna throw money at him. DC will throw money at him. Yeah, but it I also I also think Greg is ready for some other stuff. I don't know. He worked on Spawn for a long, long time. He's the kind of guy that can stick it like stick these things out for the long haul. But if if Snyder goes, is he going to stay? DC might give them both a lot of money to keep a good thing going. I mean, yeah, let's not go with the teeny tiny underdog DC. They can put up money too. But we don't, like, I don't want them to stay on just for the money. Like, I want them, like, Scott Snyder is always talking about, you know, you do, you do the, the stories that you want to do. But, like, how many of those do you really have in you, Scott Snyder? Like, how much do you have before you're like, I'm burnt out on Batman? I don't know. Maybe he has a reserve of stories. I mean, how many McSaw stories can you do, Paul? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always a lot more than I ever expect I can do. Maybe Scott Snyder has a, a similar kind of uh, work ethic, a well of Batman stories and. Matt brought up a great point. Greg Capullo isn't a flaky artist like Jim Lee or Todd McFarlane. It's true. This dude is a workaholic. You can see it on his Twitter page. You know, he, he bangs out these these strips. It's his fucking job, and he makes it that. And he's timely. His work always looks great. Some artists, they come out on time, but you can tell. It's kind of shaky. There is, there is, I don't mean to make this the Greg Capullo Batman podcast, but there's, it's too late. there's never an issue of his Batman where there's a panel that pulls me out, where I'm just like, ooh. Like, Greenland, the current Green Lantern book, it's pretty rough. Billy Tan or whatever. Billy Tan. There's Billy Tan <laughs> is kind of a, eh, he'll do a really good cover, and then just be like, oh, he's stop. not even. Not no, even. we don't I, like I Billy Tan? Like, like, I don't feel like he, can, he knows how to draw Hal Jordan's head. Like, his heads are always... He's no. great with aliens, but when he has to draw a human head, it's like he's never seen one before. Mm. But there's nothing in the Greg Capullo book. Am I thinking Bill Tan or... Th- maybe I'm thinking Phil Tan. There's Philip Tan and there's Billy Tan. And both of them have questionable art. They draw heads are they like... related? Uh, I, don't I don't think so. Their faces are super round, just like their actual faces. I feel like he never gives Hal Jordan enough this is enough upper head. Like he always kind of crops it off mid forehead. This, well, but this, this is Phil Tan stuff, though. I think Real. Phil Tan is better than Bill Tan. <laughs> the War of the Tans. Tan Throwdown. Do you have a preference for Tan? Uh, no. Matt and I were flipping through this this last Green Lantern, this latest Green Lantern, a couple days ago, and Matt was a little more forgiving about the artwork than I was. Uh, but maybe maybe we'll let Ian 
Well, that is a, the tie. It is a little. It's a pretty round head that we're looking at here. It's a little. It's it's a little better. Like I think I'm beating it up a little bit right now, or maybe I just have a higher standard for what I want from a Green Lantern book. But like this isn't it. Every time I look at it, I'm like, all right, this is passable. I'd give this a C. Yeah, you've had some really good uh, artists over the years on Green Lantern. So when you get something of this caliber, yeah, your expectations are higher. It's it's not awful. Like, if it was a fill-in, that would be one thing. But if this is the guy, if this is what you got to look at week in and out, I don't know. Green Lantern probably deserves better. Here's some shit for my summer reading. Superman, whenever Jeff Johns and John Romita Jr. come on this June, I typically... Don't read Superman, but I'm a big John Romita fan. I'm a big Jeff Johns fan. Jeff Johns has written the best Superman books that I've ever read, so I'm definitely on board with um, with this. Yeah, that's also going to be part of my summer reading since it releases in June. Yeah, it I, comes out? I think it comes out in a week or two. Yeah, Really? Yeah. I'm pretty excited. Um, well, that's because Superman has been essentially a debacle over the last three years since they relaunched oh, it. You know, that was it was gonna nice. be the, the the great jumping on point for, for those of us that maybe never quite got into the character like you, Ian. I never I mean there were are a few standout stories over the years that I really did enjoy, but I was never a regular Superman reader. And I thought because I do love the character, I thought, man, this is my chance to get into him. And you know the the George Perez issues were pretty bad. The um, the the Grant Morrison fucking mind fuck of a story <laughs> was was just it was mind melting, did not th- in a good way. Did you think that you were going to enjoy the Grant Morrison stuff for even a second? Yes, because I liked the first couple. Yeah, the first two issues were pretty great. It got off to such a great start, and it was fresh. Yeah, it was brand new. And yeah, like holy shit, never seen this this side of this character mm-hmm. before. Superman was a little bit like kind of bad in a way, and then know? it got real Grant Morrison. Yeah, I didn't understand what was happening. And then all of a sudden, Superman's black in one one issue. Well, you we, we those issues. Before that. Okay, I only lasted like four issues. Man, I was out. I feel I like I went it. about nine, maybe about nine issues. I, mean, I like Grant Morrison, but I just, I don't know. It just didn't appeal to me. Not like I, uh, any of the Jeff Johns stuff did or, you know, any of the um, Loeb and Sale, like the yeah. um, what is it, For All Seasons is a great one. And, you know, I feel like they tried to write the ship a little bit with Superman Unchained, you know, put Jim Lee on, on our book. But that was also super lame and boring. Yeah, like, none of this worked, but it really does feel like this Jeff Johns, John Romita Jr., like, two kind of long-standing professionals that know what the fuck they're doing. Well, the best the best Superman in the DCU is Superman Wonder Woman. And who's the writer on that again? Charles Soule. The Batman and Robin writer, correct? No, that's Peter Tomasi. Oh, the She-Hulk writer, Charles, Charles Soule. Oh, okay. He also writes Red Lanterns. There's like, something else from Marvel. My man writes... He writes his he ass writes off. a lot of shit. He writes Letter 44. 
Um, you is like that the creator owned? Yeah. Okay. You, you like the type treatment on that Superman? It's kind of like it kind of looks like the movie Superman because it's like sparkly, kind of like it looks like the movie treatment. Don't yeah, you think? it does. Oh yeah, it's got it's got that sheen that um, like chrome almost. Yeah. Now, clearly, uh, John Romita Jr.'s Superman still retains the the god-awful costume that they've created for him. Um, He's he's got elbow pads. Elbow pads, pads. It's just, I I don't even mind the look so much, but when I see that look, I know right away what that is. I know that it's like some kind of weirdo, um, like, tech. Yeah, it's like nanotech. Stuff instead of just cloth, uh, and that bothers me. Yeah, I, I have that. I have that same reaction when I look at that. There's part of me that's like Jeff Johns, John Romita, and then I see that costume and I immediately vomit. Do you guys have the same feeling about Greg Capullo's Batman? Because I don't have that bad reaction. Sure, it has some of the same, like the the uh, the piping or the the you know stitch lines on it, but I don't know. I don't have. The same, like, oh, I hate that costume. No, it's because, so similar. Because Batman's is... Batman's is a put-together suit. It's more... It's more like the Chris Nolan Batman costume than it is just some nanotech bullshit that gets put together. Like, Batman needs some elbow pads or, you know, like, some knuckle studs and shit. Superman doesn't need that. Superman needs jeans and a t-shirt. He needs a cloth uni... Cape, get him out there. He doesn't need the the writer's cheat of the nanotech costume. Yeah, it's it's just such an unnecessary addition, and yeah, Batman and does uncool knee pads, you know, all that kind of protection. He's just a guy, just does a ba- little guy. Does Batman wear a cup? I can't see his he, dick he, in this picture. I don't know. He has to wear a cup. All superheroes should wear a cup just to. Just to give them the, for dignity's the sake, no, yeah. so no one sees Bruce Wayne's cock down the side of his leg. So there isn't a meme with Superman's right. outlined penis, <laughs> right? So everything's just in a you know, nice, nice little bulge down there. Super bulge, right? Uh, that is good. I I don't like the Flash costume either, and I've never because you liked can it. see his cock. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine with the flash the flash like vibrating at super speed? It was going right through you. You wouldn't even feel it. The flash, <laughs> yeah, if he's vibrating at, at that super speed. The flash can't run with a cup. So it just, <laughs> just dangles. Dumb, like he would just. He has to. He's that sounds eat. like a woodpecker, but it's his dick against the cup. I think I hear Barry Allen. He's gotta get, he's gotta keep those balls in check. You know, he's gotta have some super jock itch, man. That's gotta be bad. It's all that rubbing and chafing. I don't even like the old Flash costume. The Flash costume is always fucking ridiculous because it comes out of his ring. You know what's really funny? We're talking about the Flash's dick, and I mean, like, couldn't couldn't he just wear a trench coat then? You know, the Flash. Oh, he should be the Flash, shouldn't he? I think he needs a new look. 
I don't like I don't like the the costume that comes out of the ring. I, I think it's that's pretty cheesy. He's fast enough, like Superman. Just carry it in, in a backpack with you. You know, go change real quick. You know, it doesn't need to. The cold coming out of a ring thing. I kind of understood where the fuck that happened. Yeah, I don't know where that happened either. The one good thing about the Flash is he's pretty much kept kept the same uniform the whole time. I mean, Jake Eric excluded. Like, yeah, even now it has you know some of the piping in it. What's nice is that he has the entire headpiece, so that we're not forced to look at the new Fifty Two collar. True, true. So Matt, Valiant uh, books, mm-hmm. yeah, gold key characters. You're yeah, those this summer. Yeah, uh, actually, starting this weekend, I have been incredibly busy this week. I got my books on Wednesday, and I have wanted nothing more than to dig into some of these comic books. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to get cranking on the the Gold Key Old Valiant stuff, maybe even check out some regular Valiant. Some of the other reading I want to do, another throwback, I found... I dug up some some of my early Astro Cities that came out uh, about a year ago. Um, I got the first three issues, and um, that's not it, that's Green Arrow. Uh, I got the first three issues, I only read the first two, so I'm going to read this, I think I'm going to go back and reread one, two, and three, and then if I'm feeling it, which I probably will, because I've always liked the series, uh, go ahead and track down, I believe, four through twelve, which... Being that these are Kurt Busiek books, basically I'm, I'm reading War and Peace if I'm reading 12 yeah. issues of Astro City. They are wordy as fuck, and I ordinarily hate that. I was going to say, that's but, a major deterrent. But Astro City does about, about as good a job as any comic book I have ever read in the superhero genre for world building. That is a big... Key word here on the McSauce podcast, world building. Actually, it's two words, but they're both key, especially when you put them together. And that's a big deal. Every time I see an Astro City book or hear about Astro City, I have Space Hogs, Mungo City playing in my head. Really? Yeah, that's that's become like the theme song for Astro City for me. Astro City is now a Vertigo property? It is a Vertigo. Well, I mean, it was a Wildstorm property. It was originally with Image Comics. Jim Lee took his Wildstorm imprint and sold it to DC. And it was a Wildstorm published book for a while until Wildstorm was dissolved when they started the new 52. And it didn't fit into DCU proper, so they decided that the only other option was they're not going to create Wildstorm just for Astro City. So they put it in Vertigo. This is like summer 1995 for you. I feel like you should... What kind of movies came out in 1995 that you can go see? Batman Forever. Batman Forever you can go see. I feel like Desperado was out around there. Maybe you can watch that. Yeah. What other things did you do in 1995? In 1995, I feel like I was playing my PlayStation 1, the original PlayStation. You had a PlayStation 1 in 1995? Play- the original PlayStation came out in 1994. I think I waited. and I think I was... 
a 90, a late adopter, if you will. Ah. 97, somewhere oh. around there. Oh, Final Fantasy Seven. No, I'm trying to think what the big game was that I got. Probably NFL Game Day. Something, something uh, like that. 989 Studios. Yes, yes. Even before it was 989, it was just regular PlayStation Sony. put it out. Yeah, Sony developed it. Um, my brother and I bought the PlayStation the day that it was released. Really? Yeah, because I was always a big Sega fanboy. Still am, actually. But I was. we had the Sega Genesis. The next thing coming out, Paul, as you know, was the Sega Saturn. And I was like... We need the Sega Saturn. My brother said, no, no, no. No, you don't want the Sega Saturn. Sony's making a system. I'm like, Sony? And this is back when Sony was fucking cool, right? You saw that Sony logo and you knew it was quality. But you didn't know if they could make a console at that point. You didn't, but you remember seeing the Sony logo at the beginning of certain games. Like if you had a Sega CD, you remember the game Night Trap? Night Trap, that's not... I remember Sewer that was the one, Shark. Sewer Shark, Night Trap was out where you... I think it was like where you were either trying to save college co-eds from these, like, intruders. Paul perked up for that one. Um, from these, like, people that were intruding the house. And you had to, like, set traps up, and it was all, like... For the co-eds to fall into. Video. <laughs> like, live-action video recorded sequences. It was a terrible game but that's so all that live action video blew my mind back at the time sure but uh anyway i remember seeing the sony logo in front of like certain games in in that era and then so you knew they were kind of in the game a little bit and then they decided to come out with their own system because as the story goes, Paul, I don't want to spend too much time on video game. Well, it's going to bum him out because we're going to segue perfectly into my summer reading here. So nice. continue. So, as legend goes, Sony w- wasn't even planning on making a system. They wanted to team up with Nintendo and basically put a CD drive in the next Nintendo machine, right? So that way they could go up against Sega with their Saturn. Nintendo was all for it until something happened at some point. Nintendo got cold feet, and they said, we don't think that CDs are the future. We don't feel like that's the way to go. So they backed off. They're like, we want to stick with cartridges. Dummies, right? Look where they are now. So then Sony said, you know what? Fuck you. We are going to make our own system then. And that's when the PlayStation was born, CD-based, and they went, and they crushed the Sega Saturn and essentially put Sega out of the console business. That was in 95? Well, Save your uh, the devil swept the Red Wings in the Stanley Cup. Uh, final. There we go. <laughs> I believe that was in the summer too. Correct. Yeah, that was probably uh, late May before Stanley Cup Finals rolled into June, like they do these days. There are even um, some rumors of a Legend of Zelda game that was produced for the Nintendo Sony Hybrid Disc. Oh, I didn't know that. There were a few Mario games that were produced. Really, really. Poorly made Mario games, not made by the creator of Nintendo. I, I can't even pronounce his name, so I'm not even going to try. Miyamoto. Ah, yes, him. Um, and one of the things that went into Nintendo getting out of it, Nintendo always was really controlling of its content. Who made Nintendo games? How many Nintendo games could be put out by each third-party company a year? Um, so they put in all kinds of fail-safes into the cartridges to make sure that you couldn't copy them. That was one of their biggest fears with the disc property, 
was that that's really easy to replicate a disc. It's it's really cheap to make, but it's easy to copy. Do you yeah. remember that? You had to mod your PlayStation, put that, solder that chip onto it. I don't know where people were getting those, but... I never did it, but I knew people that did it. They and had, had all to, these pirated games. Yeah, you and you could once you got the CD burner, that's what it was, a CD burner. And you could burn CDs. Oh my God. Could, unlimited CDs. You just bought a stack of CDs and you would just go and you burn would, them. If I remember, you, you had to... Because you weren't downloading them yet, you were you were renting them or and, borrowing a friend's, yeah. and you would transfer all the shit onto the computer. Then you would take the disc out, put the blank in, and not that I ever did this. And then you would burn it onto the CD, and you were good to go. Part of my summer reading ties into this: the console wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the battle that defined a generation. I want to read that. It's all about. Just that. Now, are you going to read this? I'm going to. I'm going to listen to this okay. one. Okay. Um, it's it's all about Sega as sort of an underdog company coming up against Nintendo, who itself in the '80s had rose up from a company that produced Donkey Kong and Super Mario in Mario Brothers, brought over their Famicom uh, family gaming system to America, had to disguise it as a robot with that that came with. A game console because there was a video game console crash in 1984. Retailers were afraid of video game consoles. In 85, that's whenever the Nintendo Entertainment System came over and took America. There was nobody to go up against it. Later on, in the early 90s, that's when Sega had kind of got their footing and was able to go up against Nintendo. And this book's all about the battle that was waged and in the living rooms and I remember that. of America. I remember, I remember the mudslinging in the ads. Do you remember the Sega, the ad that said, we do what Nintendo don't? I do remember that. That was like the coolest ad. Uh, Sony later on had that You Are Not Red E, and it was like some edgy, like MTV-looking produced commercials. Yeah. Because Nintendo always has been... Sort of like family fair, and that's its greatest strength as well as its biggest weakness is that they they will give you these very accessible games that the whole family can enjoy with great mascots that you always want to follow along in their adventures, but no blood and guts. Right. I always feel like that's kind of their downfall, though, is they do what they're going to do and you will not dictate to them what they're going to do. So the market clearly likes Call of Duty and Grand Theft Auto. You're not going to see that shit from Nintendo. If Nintendo would just like say, uh, okay, we'll, we'll give you that, plus we'll give you Mario and Zelda, they would be number one. But they will not do it. They remind me of Apple in that way. Apple's just going to do what Apple's going to do. Whereas the competition's like, okay, people, what do you want? You want a bigger screen on your phone? Okay, fine, here you go. Meanwhile, with the iPhone, you're still working with like little dinky screens. But Nintendo has been extremely successful. This recent round of the video game wars excluded. The Wii outsold a, you know, PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360 because everybody could play it, and it was different, and it was something that wasn't the same as your That's you know, true. shoot 'em up kind of thing. We really thought outside the box with its naming, the types of games that it brought to you, who it was targeting. It was extremely successful, and, and you wouldn't get that if you followed along with everybody else and what they were all doing. That is true, but 
because of that, it's putting them in a position right now. They're in they're a bad in, spot now. Right. And, and that was more of a fluke than, I think, a planned out strategy for success. No, I, I think it was everybody's doing this. We're going to go. We're, everybody's zigging. We're going to zag. I think it was... A, it was a plan to do something I, different. I agree with that, but I feel like the success of it was somewhat unnatural. Yeah. Like they created a um, a demand for that system by not meeting uh, like retail demand, and and in turn, like that made demand even more. It was like, <laughs> oh my god, I fucking found a Wii three years later. I th- we seem to burn out. Real fast. I think Real what, hot, and then just... And now everyone's like, okay, now what's next? I, th- done with I think what they did was something that where Microsoft and Sony were going towards the the hardcore gamer, Nintendo came back and scooped up all the casual fans, and they got that entire market of people that can't dedicate 60 hours to a video game, that might want nostalgia, that wants all those things, a simple... Gameplay and a simple device. You don't, don't think that you don't agree with that? Not really. I okay. feel like they wanted, uh, or the the people that they got were the people who wanted to play Wii Sports. That's it. That's the only, they didn't sell games. All they did was sell the system and the game that came with it. That's why people would be at you know your house and they'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. Wii Bowling. I want Wii Bowling. And that was the only fucking game they ever owned. Those are your casuals. Because if that's not the case, where are those people now? Why aren't they buying the Nintendo Switch? Because the Nintendo Wii U is the same exact thing. That's where they failed. They failed with this new version. The Wii was really successful with being able to have the online store where you could go back and buy all those old games. Yeah. People were a lot of people did that. People bought, you know, like you referenced, Wii Sports. People also bought the Just Dance games. It, it invented sort of a new style of gamer that I think it's going to take a couple years for there's going they're going to have to be a marriage of the gamers that just want that fun kind of um, experience married with a little more depth with the game. I, I think that that's where it's going. But that's what I think. Paul, boring. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> you know it's so funny how you can how obvious it is when Paul's not enjoying the topic. <laughs> I don't think it's that obvious. I think it's, I, I'm yeah. doing the same stuff that I always do whenever we're talking about whatever. Like I'm, you know, checking Twitter and <laughs> looking stuff up on Wikipedia while, while I'm invested in topics. You're you're so bored. You're looking for hockey scores you know aren't there. I ha- I have um I have a whole lot to offer to the video game conversation. Well, but all the all the recent. Articles and headlines I see is are that Nintendo's in a bad spot right now. Nintendo yeah, the, lost like this something latest, like four hundred eighty million this year. Yeah, past this latest year. Mario Kart game is like kick ass, but other than that, it's just nothing. Well, here's the thing that Nintendo always has, um, and they can almost bank on they can get a certain percentage of people that buy video games and will go out and buy an entire system on one character. Because they got me. As soon as that new Legend of Zelda game comes out, I saw a couple screenshots, I'm going to pick up a Wii U. People jump in on Metroid. As soon as that new Metroid comes out, there are going to be people that will buy the system just for Metroid. But uh, how big of a market is that right now? Like, how, how much There are is, still fans how out much there. In a, yeah, but the... The age range 
that's buying Call of Duty and Halo and all the games that are driving the market. How many people in that demographic right now are like, oh, awesome, Metroid? Well, Mario and Zelda and Mario Kart are going to, you know, sell probably, maybe not Call of Duty numbers, but Halo numbers probably. Yeah, I mean, Mario Kart is one of the most successful franchises of all time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you said that the Wii U is the same as the Wii, right? It's fairly similar. But they have the, the touchpad, you know, the like that's a totally different... It's, it's like a 3DS kind of with your TV. Yeah, it's, it's fairly similar, though. It's sort of the same experience. It's not different enough that people would go out of their way, and they didn't have enough launch games to drive. They Sure, they had, like, Mario, you know, the new Mario game, yeah. but I don't think they really had anything else to really. go along with it. Um, they have high. They have good graphics. Finally, the Wii had crappy graphics. Yeah, it didn't have really good graphics. The Wii U has good graphics. Do you have a Wii U or? Yeah, you do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you have the new Mario game? Mario Kart or uh, just uh, Mario Brothers, whatever it's called. No, I have Mario Kart. New Smash Brothers is that? Isn't that coming out? I think I that's think another. I've one never played Smash people. Brothers. No, I, I got Mario Kart and I downloaded it, and I haven't played it yet because I haven't had time. But um, one of our one of our old friends who has since moved to California has been tweeting and Facebook messaging nonstop about it. So he he was texting me and, and kind of demanded that I get it, and I had a. Uh, a gift card that I decided to finally... You didn't use that money from that bet that you won from that dope? No, no, that was for dinner for everyone. And I feel much better that we used it collectively. So do I. Although we are running out, so please make another dumb bet. Yeah, what do you guys want us to bet on so I can lose some more money? But Paul, let's get you back in the conversation. You still have a stack of books over there. Besides King's Scores, what will you be reading this summer? I will be read. well, I would love to get caught up on all of my BPRD reading. That's the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense. It's uh, the spinoff book from Hellboy. And the I've only ever gotten these in trades. I've never bought single issues, but these books are fantastic. Um, it's they're all written by Mike Mignola, who created Hellboy. Um, they've had a, a lot of different artists come and go on the book, but John Arcudi has been the main artist for for the bulk of these. And his art is, um, it's not very refined, but there's there's something about it that just really works well for the dark subject matter in these books. And unlike... <clears throat> what does this look like? It looks like uh, Camp Lesbian or whatever that book is that we keep seeing at the shop. No, right right here where I'm blocking it out. Oh, that's definitely a penis. <laughs> that's filthy. What, I don't what know. is it? I don't it's know really, it's a hand. But uh, I don't know how hand. you popped up on that so fast. Uh, I got an eye for the pole, sir. What's BPRD is uh, they're they're on their second run. They're they're on a, a run of books called Hell on Earth. And they're up to number nine right now. 
And I, I haven't read four yet. I, I need to read four through nine, and I'm just going to burn through these once I once I get all, all of them. And what's nice about this run is it, it's been going on forever, but it's still very character-driven. It's still all about who the main cast is. It's not about uh, the frog people taking over the Earth or Hellboy getting lost in Hell, and that resulted in you know everything bad under the Earth coming up to take over the surface world. Um, it's all about the characters, and it's it's been amazing the entire time. Every time we talk about books that I love, I always feel like I shortchanged this one. But it's such a good cast. Uh, it's an ensemble cast, and it's great stuff. Great stuff. It lo- this volume that I'm looking at here, the Pickens County Horror and Others, Volume 5 of the um, mm-hmm. Hell on Earth series, the the first story in here, I think it's three separate stories. I don't know what the fuck it is, but it interests me. I, I want to read this. It looks really good. And, and I agree with you, Paul. For some reason, we always kind of skip over how impactful the Hellboy universe is. I love those books. I love BPRD. I'm not sure why, and I'm really far behind on it, too. I'm not even caught up with Hellboy. Yeah. I'm going to have to go through, figure out where the hell I am with those trades, where I left off, and then start collecting them again. And I love I love the characters. Abe Sapien, Johan Krauss, uh, Roger the homunculus that got killed, even uh, Kate Corrigan, who's kind of the the, um, the human introductory character. Is Liz still a part of that team? Or yeah, no? Liz Sherman is, is still around, though she kind of she quit the, the Bureau like Hellboy did. It's just, it's just really, really neat, really interesting stories. So, uh, and it's a universe that it, it's so self-contained. It's not like anything else out there that you would read. It brings in non-comic book fans all the time. I know my wife is really into Hellboy. And it's she all reads trades, so. it's all paranormal, supernatural stuff. It's all really weird. It's like an X Files supernatural. Uh, they're really able to do like long form storytelling with it because the, the reason Supernatural's work for so long is because there's so many avenues you can go down with it there's so many different stories you can tell and all of that stuff plays into the Hellboy and BPRD world so well I think that some of the stories in the you know the Hellboy series are, are better than others yeah. uh, what I gravitate more toward are the or less would be the the really big ones, the ones that just like I don't I don't even know how to describe it. I would say the ones that feel a little more like the movies are the ones that I'm a little less interested in. The ones that just get so big that it's you lose that like intimacy of the character driven nature mm-hmm. of it, and you know that's kind of like where I get lost sometimes. But like. Um, if I remember correctly, that first Hellboy with was it the Frogmen, Frog People? Yeah, I really, really like yeah, that. What's the first one called? Sea of Destruction. Sea of Destruction. Wake um, the Devil. Yeah, Sea of Destruction. No, no, wake the, the Devil. Wake the Devil. What? The Devil was the. Is that the second one? I think so. I could be wrong. Um, one thing with the books. Do you notice that the spine and the glue to Dark Horse books is worse than any other company? No, but they're 
app is worse than any other companies when it comes to reading their comics. It is Seed of Destruction, followed by Wake the Devil. The my Hellboy books, and not by me rolling them up and taking them in my backpack. They've you know the the spine gets real weak, and some of the pages have fallen out. We have to replace them. I don't know, and it, and it's just with Hellboy books, so it's. I blame that all on you, Dark Horse. I feel like at some point, um, the BPRD line kind of supplanted the Hellboy books as which ones are my favorite from that universe. And I think it has something to do with what Matt said about the bigger storytelling. Yeah. Is that at some point, the stories get so big, because initially, Hellboy's working for the BPRD. He's with Abe Sapien and Liz. You get to see this the relationship he has with the people that he's grown up with in the, you know, in the Bureau. But uh, at some point, you know, the Bureau pulls some bullshit and Hellboy quits, and then he's off on his own. The story gets so big about, um, you know, how he's supposed to rule hell at some point. And the story really gets away from the personal aspect. But BPRD never has. BPRD is always focused on how the characters are reacting to all this insanity going on around them, not the insanity itself. So that's what I'd like to finish reading. So like you have how many? On how many trade paperbacks? Um, I have five here, and there's two more at the shop that I need to pick up. Uh, and I will devour these. We'll eat them up. I was looking through them. They're not that wordy. They they look like pretty brisk reads. It, I feel like you could read a trade paperback in the time it would take you to read one issue of <laughs> Astro City. As wordy as Busiek is, um, there was his run on Superman right before they did One Year Later, mid 2000s, I guess. I really enjoyed. So, Matt, is that uh, are we on Ian? Who wants to talk? Who wants to talk about? Their next bit Does anybody have any other summer reading? You can go right now. I, I talked last. Uh, well, I have... Um, well, you, you kicked us off with uh, some real book reading. Um, I'm sorry for the jumbo jet sound effects Get here. Get take off, folks. Yep. But uh, th- you are not the only one, Paul, that is going to be reading novels, and Ian, you're going to be listening to them. I decided to... Go ahead and take a chance and, and buy a book. I bought a paperback book You're at, a crazy person. at Target. Um, and I am really interested in reading this book. Uh, Paul, you'll like this. It's a Stephen King novel. Uh, but you have not read it because it's a more recent one. It's 2013's Joyland. Um, immediately, I was, I was intrigued just based on the, the cover artwork. It has a very pulpy, kind of old, vintage looking ah, style. titillating. And there's a, there's a rather busty redhead on the cover who looks like she's surprised, I would say. And um, basically they made the comparison here to something in the vein of like a Shawshank Redemption or The Green Mile. Um, and... USA Today says it's tight and engrossing. It's the it's the coming of age storytelling in a young man's roller coaster. 
because it takes place at an amusement park, I guess. Roller coaster of a summer that make Joyland a prize worth all your tokens and skee-ball tickets. Um, but apparently it's a little bit of, like, a horror mixed with a thriller, mixed with, like, this coming-of-age tale and, like, this melancholy love-lost kind of thing. just sounds like it's got a lot of really good stuff going on, so... That, you know, I'm probably even more excited to get into this than the Valiant stuff, to be honest with you. So, that is going to be my book. I love reading at least one book a summer, if I can. I don't think I did last year, but a lot of times I'll read an A. Lee Martinez book. A. Lee Martinez writes about some wacky-ass fantasy-style creatures, kind of usually set in the real world, though. Um... Great stuff. One of my all-time favorite summer reading books was Gil's All Fright Diner by A. Lee Martinez. So, if you guys are looking for a good, funny, fun, quick-paced book, Gil's All Fright Diner. Check it out. A. Lee Martinez. But, maybe in a few weeks I can recommend Joyland instead. I don't know why that's not part of the Stephen King library that I subscribe to. Maybe because it's... What's that publisher on there? Uh, Hard Case Crime. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's a publisher deal. But all the all the novels and everything. And even stuff like um, On Writing comes in the, the library. But I think I may have to look that one up. I can't imagine being so prolific as to write... All these books that Stephen King puts out every single year. I mean, he just cranks out novel after novel. And it's, it's pretty amazing that he does uh, such quality work. I'm, I'm a big fan Looks of Stephen like, King um, as well. That's how I feel about... Uh, who's the My Chemical Romance guy? Gerard Way. Yeah. Like, he just does like, so much music and books and comics. And just having that kind of output from your brain... I, I can't even comprehend it. The diversity that he, you know, he, yeah, right? books, music, all those different elements. It's really amazing and inspiring for lazy schmucks like us. And then I'm like, oh, I need to do it. Skirt a week. Oh, shit, this is so hard. What am I going to talk about on the podcast this week? Does anyone else have any more summer reading to talk about? Mm. Ian, I might be getting into some Audible stuff this, this summer as well, like you. Take, way to go. Yeah, take advantage. I gotta tell you, the Super Nintendo, uh, Sega Genesis console war stuff intrigues me. Paul, I know it intrigues you too. I'll lend it to you as soon as I'm done. Great. If you like that, then check out... Uh, book that I just finished listening to, Super Mario. It's all about just Nintendo... And its rise to fame and you know world domination. I was from a always tiny startup card company. Yeah, they were. So. Or oh no, was that Sega that did the what are those machines called in Japan? Those I don't know. Fuck this up. Those Chino machines. Chino machines. I don't. I'm not sure. Nintendo did playing cards. Yeah. Um, what is the Chino you, machine? I, aren't those the ones where you buy like for? 
a quarter or something, like little toys and oh, shit. Oh, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Or maybe I'm completely... They might have done that. So, I don't know. This is not the McSauce video game <laughs> podcast, even though it might have felt like it tonight. Well, we talked about books. That was only two. Um, but just out of curiosity, Ian, you, were you more of a Nintendo guy? It seems like you were over Sega. Uh, you know, I went back and forth. I really did. But I loved the characters that Nintendo developed. Mario, Luigi, Link, Zelda, the Metroid franchise. I mean, I loved all that stuff. Ninja Gaiden. I, I loved it all. Of course, that was Tecmo. That wasn't Nintendo. Well, well no, but I mean... Don't you Sega. think that that's, that's a product of sentimentality because for years that's all we've had. You can still go back and play those games and they were quality video games whenever you had the option. And Nintendo was the only game in town for a long time. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like there that of course that's what you like because there wasn't anything else. But then whenever Super Nintendo went up against Sega, you had a choice there. Yeah, but by then you already had years of you know, Nintendo beating its games into your... True, but the, but, but they were still good games. If you come out with a product that's inferior, you're not going to like it, and that, you know, no matter how nostalgic you are with that property or those characters, that's going to fall away, and you're going to move on to the next thing. To so, this day, there are game companies that are still trying to emulate certain gameplay mechanics and things that were so well made and, and just perfectly designed in some of those Nintendo games. Um, you know, like, the the Super Mario Brothers was the very first side-scrolling, um, the very first side-scrolling action game. And, um, you know, there are, there's still companies that are making those 2D side-scrollers. Like, there's a, a Rayman, Rayman Legends. Mm-hmm. Really a beautiful artwork. I mean, if you like artwork and animation, check that game out because it just looks amazing. Um, but, I mean, it, it's Super Mario Brothers, you know, with a different character, a few different little mechanics, but, I mean... And they still have to put out good games. If they're not good, you're not going to hang in there. They develop new things that you do in each game, and they're still engaging. If it was shit... You wouldn't care about it yeah. as much. And they really caught on to something with Mario. In that Super Mario book, they, they go into um, not only the development of like where Mario, the character, came from, but why, why does he wear suspenders? Why does he have a mustache? It all comes down to easy-to-animate kind of things. But where did the name Mario come from? In the Super Mario book, they go into detail about all the creation of all those classic games, thought process that went into it, the kind of hardships that they had bringing that stuff over to America in a pretty pretty hostile climate at that time. So Super Mario, I know that I just talked about two video game books, but if you like video games, I can't recommend those more highly. God, I was always a Sega guy, Paul. Weren't you a Sega guy? No, was I a Nintendo guy? Of course you were. Until yeah, seriously. Until Sega came out. You two were ridiculous. Like, and NHL hockey came with it, and then it was Sega and hockey and nothing. What was your favorite video game back in the day, man? NHL, which which era, which which year? Was it ninety? Ninety four. It was ninety four. It was the one that the Kings were. It was the Kings and Canadians on the star screen. That was the one where I think that was the first one you could change your lines on. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, that was that was the one. Played that for hours, days. Tournament lost in it. Yeah, my own tournaments because you couldn't have you couldn't have your own you couldn't create your own season on that game. So I would create my own season based on did the king's actual schedule. Did you did you enter stats in in your data? I thought I still have. A little black and white composition notebook. Wow. With all of that stuff. In I it. did some of that for uh, NBA Live 95. I played the shit out of that game. Mm-hmm. Played, played this. Uh, and you could do a lot of stuff with NBA Live 95. You could even go in and if you you did the create a character, if you spelled the historic character's name right, you get Michael Jordan and all his qualities. You get Larry Bird. Uh, so me and my dad would sit down and we made up all these teams and as a joke, my dad had this team full of white characters that he would play <laughs> against my <laughs> all the time. So it was pretty funny. That's awesome. Your dad's a mess. <laughs> I know. John Havlicek and John Stockton. I not bad graphics for NBA 95. So is, was that summer of 95? It was summer of 95. Summer of 95. Me and my dad was, was Clyde Drexler one of your boys? Yeah, him, Claude the Glide, Nick Van Axel, Jason Kidd. Hakeem Olajuwon. Hakeem the Dream was on my <laughs> team. Dennis Rodman. Uh, I mean, I had a bunch I had a bunch of cats on that squad. Um, but yeah, me, me and my dad in 95 would sit down and uh, we would play that game together for hours. And I'd beat the shit out of him. But every now and then he'd pop up and beat me. Do you think he let you win because he was a good father? Uh, no. I was an excellent player because he cheated at fucking Madden, so no he. <laughs> so, my that's dad, what I was doing in 95. My dad used to be me at Madden. Yeah? Did he cheat? No, but if, if when he beat me, because I played way more than he did, I would get kind of pissed. Yeah, right? Not cool. My Sega controller, because that's what we would play Madden on, had slant... My, the one that I would use had slanted buttons because I smashed it into the ground so many times from being a spoiled sport as I am. My brother uh, is uncannily good at, at video games, and I won't play him at hockey video games anymore because he's he's just too good. I can't contain him. And you're really, I can do about you're really dominant in hockey games, too. Yeah, Were yeah. last time we played, which was like five years ago. He messes, he messes my day up. And it doesn't matter what... A hockey game it is. It doesn't matter if it's like NHL hits, or if it's even one of the like play play around games with the big heads. He'll just destroy anyone that sits down with him. Is it just hockey games, or could it be Tekken? Matthews destroyed me in Madden, and that made me pretty pissed off. So it was right at the right as I was losing some of my powers in Madden. Right, right at the end of my addiction, we'll call it. Is there any other summer tidbits you'd like to discuss? No, nah, I think we uh, covered pretty much everything. All right. Well, I'd like I'd like to leave you guys with a joke. Uh oh. Little little Star Wars joke for you. Wrap it up. And this week's a long time ago with Matt Cassell. <laughs> That's what the music should always be. What? What's the temperature of the inside of a tauntaun? IG88. What is it? Lukewarm. Oh! oh!
that's going to wrap up the show, folks. How how better way to close out the night than uh, the Pat Slane Star Wars joke? That was funny. Ian's still laughing. <laughs> Come on, you know you're going to fucking tell your family that one. Later. I can't wait. Thank you for listening tonight. Uh, maybe we gave you some good ideas for summer reading to go out before. My name is Paul McGinty. Ian Sharpley. We'll see you next week. Oh, yeah, Maxell. <laughs> no, you say it. I don't say your name. You're supposed to say I it. I was about to say my name, and then you were like, oh, that's it. See you next week. It's a terrible like, joke. The joke wasn't that bad, was it? He kicked you off the show for that joke. You waited too long. I didn't. <laughs> I, my mouth was open about He was ready to do it. My and name. You you're like, that's <laughs> all, folks. We've only done 60 of these fucking things. How did you mess that up? I was waiting the appropriate beats like every week. Episode 60, Matt's last episode. <laughs> Matt's last stand. Because of one joke? The killing joke. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, do you want to do this again? Let's no. do it. No? Do you want to try it again? I'm Matt Cassell. Good night.